0: Thank you, Eric, for those songs. Thank you for your participation in worship to our God this morning. If you are one of our guests, we are glad you are here. And we do hope you will stick around for services. Let us get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. Hey, in two weeks, next week is Easter, in two weeks, so the week after Easter, we are going to be hosting an outdoor worship service right out here on the grass, And so, yeah, I know, it's exciting. And so uh, BYOC, bring your own chair. And uh, we will be supplying the main dish, uh, hamburgers and hot dogs. And we invite you to uh, bring a side dish or a dessert for that. Uh, That Sunday morning, no Bible class. We're just going to have worship at the normal time, 1045. So, and those of you watching online, be a great opportunity, if you are so inclined, to come on out. Again, outdoor worship, out here on the lawn. And also, uh, we want to invite all of our guests to be a part of that as well. Uh, So, looking forward to that. Grab your Bible. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. We have been walking step in step with Jesus through the gospel of Mark this year. Uh, Thanks to... COVID, that is uh, our family, catching it earlier this year. I've had to adjust the schedule just a little bit, Uh, but uh, the original intent had been to land in Mark 16 on Easter. We're still going to do that, but I've had to skip a few chapters, so we're going to, after Easter, come back around and and clean up some things in Mark's gospel. There's just so much in it. But uh, in anticipation of our study of Mark 16 and the resurrection next Sunday. We need to stand at the foot of the cross this morning. And so that brings us to Mark 15. Let's read verses 1 and following. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and they brought Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? And Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had Committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let us pray. Holy Father, as we approach the cross of Christ this morning, we pray that we would see clearly because you have given us enlightenment in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to see fresh the crucifixion of our Lord. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Everything orbits around the cross of Christ. Everything is caught in the orbit of the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Christ is central to everything. You see Jesus stand before and face down the world powers. Not only those that are visible, but those that are invisible as well. We have come step in step with Jesus and as we've gone through this study we have looked at the steps that Jesus took during his earthly ministry so that we could carry those principles across the bridge of time to us today and we might follow in his steps. But as we stand at the cross we witness steps that only Jesus can take in accomplishing the redemption, the salvation, and the sanctification of the the people of God. I don't misunderstand. The cross of Christ certainly motivates us for good works, motivates us for the the holy behaviors that we engage in. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk therein. But the actual event in history, where Christ, the Son of God, is nailed to a cross. That is where Christ becomes a curse for us. That is where the sinless one takes on and even becomes sin on our behalf. It is where the just is substituted for the unjust. And only Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, only He can walk this path. But in this event, God, through the crucifixion of Christ, is doing exactly what he promised, and that is he is saving and sanctifying people. It's interesting how Mark frames the crucifixion of Christ. Did you catch the phrase that is used about a half dozen times just in the the verses that we read? Look again at verse 2, Pilate's question. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Verse 18, hail, king of the Jews, is the mocking cry of the soldiers. Verse 26, the inscription above his head read, the king of the Jews. And then verse 32, slightly different. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see. And believe. While Mark's gospel has accentuated Christ as the servant, when it comes to the cross, it's unavoidable that now the servant is enthroned and he is the king. And in the first 15 verses, we see the king confronting the counterfeit as as Jesus stands before Pilate. We see Jesus, the true king, confronting a counterfeit, and a cowardly counterfeit at that. Pilate is a moral coward, and his his cowardice is motivated by a few different factors. One is, he has no opinion of his own. He'll inquire of the people as to what they want. He'll inquire of the chief priest as to what they want. Uh, his wife in the parallel accounts will come to him and he'll inquire of her what, what he ought to do. And, and you're sitting here reading about this leader and you just, you got to say, think for yourself, man. What's your opinion in the matter? He has no opinion for himself. Part of this may be rooted in the fact that he's confused about reality itself. Every statement, just about, that is recorded here by Mark that that Pilate makes is in the form of a question. Are you king of the Jews? Have you no answer? What will you have me do? It's It's intended to communicate. He's confused all the way around. And it's John, again in the parallel account, where Pilate actually asks, what is truth? He's confused about reality itself, confused about truth. And that certainly motivates his cowardice as well. But perhaps deep down, the cowardice of Pilate is motivated by the fact that he's a sycophant. He's he's a minion. He's a fawning parasite of the Roman system of government. He wants to be friend of Caesar. That's really what he wants. The thing is, is that when you are friend of the governing system, it isn't too long before that governing system goes out of business and is replaced by maybe an opposition party. That's exactly what happens historically with Pilate. While he wants to be friends with the Caesar in his day, just a few short years later, there's a regime change. And now Pilate will have to flee into exile because the, that Caesar is going to bring charges against him to answer for what he did while he was governor here over Judea. In some ways, I suppose it's easy to be hard on Pilate. But lest we be too hard on Pilate, I think we would be wise to take inventory of ourselves, to evaluate our own hearts. How many of us have been moral cowards during our lives? How many of us are moral cowards even right now? When push comes to shove and when our backs are against the wall, Are we trying to weasel out of responsibility as it comes to the gospel and as it comes to our Christian walk? The true king calls you to choose. And you can't rely upon the opinion, well, what what do you say? And you you can be a sycophant, but I don't think any of us wants to do that. The true king calls us to choose and he calls us to be bold and to be courageous. The righteous are bold as lions, the Proverbs say. And so we ought to live up to that calling. Then Jesus is passed from the ruler to the soldiers in verses 16 through 20. And we see the king and his crown. He is crowned with a crown made out of thorns. They twisted the crown together out of the thorns the soldiers did. The soldiers, they meet Jesus with mocking, derision, ridicule, laughter, blows, striking him up upon the head. This is the response, the typical response of unregenerate humanity when they come face to face with the king of glory. It is rebellion, it is rejection, it is ridicule, it is mocking. Because it says Paul says, the cross is folly to the Gentiles. People think it's absurd that this backwoods peasant would actually be the king of the nations? The king of all humanity comes from this little dusty town called Nazareth? And yet, it's exactly who he is. He is not just king of the Jews, king of the nations, king of all humanity, king of kings, king of glory. And they crown him with a crown of thorns. We're supposed to make a connection all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to the original curse that was placed upon the man. And the work that the man would do, all he would have from it was frustration. Because all that the fields would produce would be thorns and thistles. Thorns. Ah, thorn, a symbol of the curse. And now here are these unregenerate men twisting a crown of thorns, a crown that is a reminder of the curse, and crowning the Christ with the curse. And, of course, they'll go to the cross. And the cross, anyone who is hanged on a tree is under curse. They're cursed. Crucifixion qualifies for that. This is no less than the Apostle Paul's point in Galatians chapter 3. In verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, the, the crowning of Christ is Christ being crowned with the curse. The crucifixion is Jesus taking upon himself the curse. And he does that, again, so that we might be free the curse christ he becomes the curse so that we are freed from the curse and that point is not missed by paul and it's not missed by the gospel writers who record about the coronation the actual event of crowning king jesus he's crowned with the curse and in that way becomes the curse for our benefit and on our behalf and then there's the actual event itself the king and the cross Savior is nailed to the cross at Golgotha, Calvary, and the place of death for Christ actually becomes the place of life for us. If this kind of injustice were to be committed against a a dignitary king, president, prime minister, I mean, the original report of that event would be extensive. I think about when JFK was assassinated and the the report that came out, the Warren Commission, page after page after page documenting the event. And yet, the brevity that records what actually took place when Jesus is Laid on the cross. And the nails are actually pounded into his flesh. And he is actually lifted up. The brevity is stunning. Just the economy of words. And they crucified him. Verse 24 says. That's it. That's the whole report of the whole crucifixion event. And they crucified him. Just a few brief words. And yet... As compact and as dense as that phrase is, God in that has provided everything that is needful for faith. It is sufficient for the purpose for which God sends it forth. The king is crucified and his enemies mock. We, we see the words of the passersby In verses 29 through 32, some of them are the elites in the Jewish system, the chief priests, scribes. And what they say is exactly right. If Jesus comes off the cross, he indeed saves himself. But if he saves himself, he can save no others. He can't save others if he saves himself. And so, in that way, they are right. They are actually quoting from Scripture. They're quoting from Psalm 22. Don't miss that. Because that same psalm is going to be quoted again here in just a moment. When Jesus, in verse 34, cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is from Psalm 22, verse 1. And these are textual clues that are supposed to point us to that, that 22nd psalm in its entirety. Not just verse 1, and not just the verse, I believe it's verse 18, that the leaders are quoting, but the whole thing in its entirety. And that's important if you're going to understand what Jesus is saying here when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know it's typically understood that, well, in this moment, the Father is turning his back on the Son as the Son becomes sin and takes on the sins of the world. God the Father can have nothing to do with that. And that's, that's okay. The issue with that is, for me, The deeper you get into understanding and appreciation of the Trinity, you have God forsaking God, the Father turning his back, forsaking the Son, which would be tantamount to the undoing of the Trinity. Well, then how do you make sense of this? Exegetically, go back and read the whole 22nd Psalm, and you will read. Well, let's go ahead and take a peek, shall we? Psalm 22. Psalm 22, heavily messianic, uh, extensively detailed. They pierce my hands, the enemies, and even what they say. But notice verse, I want to notice verse 24. Psalm 22, verse 24. You know what? We also need verse 19. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Verse 21, save me. Verse 20, deliver me. Now verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The rest of the psalm goes on to explain that, yes, while in the moment for those three hours where we don't have a report of exactly what is taking place except for darkness over the face of the earth, while Christ in his humanity experiences all of the pain, physiologically, psychologically, that goes along with the crucifixion, there is not an undoing, as it were, of the Trinity. But rather, the Father does indeed vindicate the Son. In fact, as you go on, all this points to the conclusion of this, which points to resurrection. Uh, Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. How shall posterity serve him? If he's dead and forsaken, well, he's not forsaken. He's not abandoned to Sheol, as David says in the 16th 16th Psalm. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Much more can be said about the 22nd Psalm. I just want to emphasize here that when... That when Christ utters this, and when his enemies are fulfilling prophecy from the 22nd Psalm, that the entire Psalm is, is is in view here, and the Gospel writers recognize that. Does Christ quote the whole 22nd Psalm? I'm inclined to think that, yeah, he probably did. There are those who say, well, he's so beaten and tortured that all he can really utter are just the, the, those, those four words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. There's a case to be made for both sides, I think. Regardless, again, the whole psalm is in view, and we need to keep that in mind. But we come back. Who is it that actually crucifies Christ? The whole world is represented here. You have the the Jewish leaders that are coming by. You have the Roman soldiers representing the Gentiles who are actually pounding in the nails. You have the whole world responsible for the death of Christ. That's the emphasis here. And indeed, the whole world is responsible for this. Wicked people delivered Jesus over. Sinful hands actually drove the nails into his flesh. And yet, while all of these humans in rebellion are doing exactly what they want to do, governing all of this, is the eternal purpose of God to see to it that exactly what happens is exactly what God has ordained to take place so that humans can be redeemed and saved and sanctified. So, at one level, yes, these human agents are operating according to the desires of their flesh in rebellion to God. And at another level... They, are, they, they know what they're doing, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't know that they're actually fulfilling the eternal purpose and will of God for redemption and salvation. And so even in the rebellious wills and intentions of humans, God is seeing to it that his eternal purposes and determinations are carried out. Man, our God is so wise. Our God is, is so powerful. They crucify the king. And in the moment, it certainly looks like defeat. And yet, the king is victorious. Because in the death of Christ, death itself is conquered. He is the king of glory, the king of kings, the king of the nations. He's the king of all humanity. He's the king of all powers, visible and invisible. And let me just say that that means again why i started off by saying everything comes into orbit of the crucifixion as christ is enthroned as king on the throne of the cross he is demonstrating that he himself is king over all world powers including the world powers that are in power today whether they be federal state or local all need to acknowledge the lordship of christ Father says in Psalm 2, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Good news that is preached in Zion in Isaiah 52 is your God reigns. Brothers and sisters, your God and my God reigns. Yeah, but, yeah, but uh, just, uh, you know, it, man, it doesn't seem like it. Make no mistake. That even in the rebellious human wills today that are running amok in various ways, Christ is putting under his feet all of his enemies. The Father is putting under the feet of the Son all of his enemies. And Christ will be demonstrated as Lord of all. What do we do? We say, come reign over me. Lord God, King of everything, come and reign over me. Curtain is torn. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. I'll invite you to go and watch the video about the tabernacle we talked about on Wednesday night. That that was a curtain that was four fingers thick. Okay, this isn't the lacy drapery, right? And just real nice, whatever. This was substantial curtain material. All right, Intric- intricately woven and sewn together, and thirty feet tall, or if I remember right, in the temple. And that thing was torn, not from the bottom up, from top to bottom, and it communicates that the way of access into the very throne room of God is now available to God's people. So much more. Let me, let's me. let go to Hebrews 13, and, and this is where we're going to land. Hebrews 13, what does the cross and the crucifixion of Christ mean for us? And, and how ought we to live in light of that? Hebrews 13, I want us to notice verses 12 and 13. The writer of Hebrews there writes, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore... Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, in verse 12, he talks about the sanctifying effect of the cross. That when Christ suffers outside the gate, outside the gate of Jerusalem, in other words, and he does, that's where Golgotha is located, Christ suffers there in order to Sanctified in order to make holy, in order to holify, to, to coin a word, by a word, I guess. His suffering, when he suffers, he of course bleeds, and it's through his blood, through the blood of Christ, that our, our sins are forgiven, that Christ is purchasing his church, and that we are sanctified, set apart, made holy, holified. Not holy field, that's holy-fied. There is no other way to be forgiven. There is no other way to be sanctified except by, through the blood of Christ. That's the only way. And it is through the cross that, that Jesus does exactly what his name means. Jesus, his name means he shall save them from their, he'll save his people from their sins. That's the angelic report. And he does just that. And freed from our sins, Christ's people now, verse 21, are equipped with everything good that you may do his will. And that's what verse 13 is about. Therefore, in light of the fact that Christ suffered outside the gate in order that we may be, that he may sanctify a people through his blood, therefore, let us go to him. Outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You see, Christ endured to the fullest everything that he endured because that was what was necessary to sanctify the people. And now we are to go to him outside the camp. Very interesting phrase here. Contextually, the book of Hebrews is written by, I'm persuaded, a Jewish Christian, a Jewish believer to other Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, and these Jewish Christians are being tempted, and perhaps some of them even have, gone back to the temple and the sacrificial system. And everything in the book of Hebrews is written in order to communicate, don't go back. That's all shadow. We have the substance in Christ. We have a new and a better thing in Christ. And so this phrase, go to him outside the camp, Is to communicate. No, you're trying to go back inside the camp. You need to go outside the camp. You need to forsake all of that, Jewish believers, forsake all of the sacrificial system. That's going out of business anyway. And go to him outside the camp. What does that mean for us? To go outside the camp is to forsake everything that is inconsistent with Christ and His purposes. Don't misunderstand. That sacrificial system served its purpose, but it's now obsolete because we have this new thing. And for us, again, to go outside the camp is to forsake everything that is not in keeping with, it, doesn't square with Christ and his purposes. It doesn't square with the will of God, verse 21 again. Anything that is at odds with Christ, anything that is according to the camp of the world is to be forsaken is to be abandoned for Jesus' sake. And so we go to him, our king enthroned on his throne in that moment, in order that we might be forgiven and made holy. And the world will hate us for this. There will be reproach that we must endure and we must bear. The world will hate us doing this, and they will hate us for it. But as Christ bore the reproach, so we also, in this way, follow in his steps. What needs to be abandoned in your life? Evaluate your own heart, even right now. Take inventory. What in your life that belongs to the camp of the world, what do you have in your life that belongs to that camp? And what do you need to forsake in order to fully accept Christ it is sometimes in vogue these days you'll hear skeptics and others say you know if if only God if if he would just come down or if she right that's kind of a popular thing right if God whether he's he or she would come down well then I would believe in him or her Our our reply to that, brothers and sisters, is God did come down in human nature, as a Jewish male, by the way. He came down to this earth, and the people did not believe in him, and they did not worship him. They crucified him. They shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. And they crucified him. They did. So this business... Uh, well, if, if God would just come down, well, he did. Why do you persist in your rebellion? That's really the question. You see, the king of glory was nailed to the cross for sinful humanity in order to save his people from their sins, from our sins. And in light of the cross, brothers and sisters, We not only have everything, and and our Father equips us with every good thing that we need to do His will. But then we are exhorted to do just that, to get busy doing the will of our God in the here and the now. Everything is brought into orbit around the cross. That includes you, you, and me, every last one of us. Let us pray. Father, you sent your blessed Son into this world. Lord Jesus, you laid down your life on the altar of the cross. You stretched out your arms on the hardwood of the cross to bring everyone into your saving embrace. We pray that by the Holy Spirit, we would be enabled to go out and to make you known to those who do not know you, to bring the nations into your fold, indeed, to bring lost souls to the foot of the cross where they might see their Savior. May we do this with love. May we do this with gentleness. May we do this with respect. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. They meant it in derision, and yet it was the truth. He is the king. When we look at the cross, we see our king. And he is drawing his people to himself. My friend, You are here this morning and you have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus. We invite you to do that. We invite you to say to Jesus, come and reign over me. And that means turning away from sin, turning to Christ, confessing him as Lord, being baptized, immersed in water, have all your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, raised to live this new life, having been filled with his spirit. This is something that you desire, we can help you with that even today. Many of us, most of us, we've, we've done that. How's your walk been, my brother, my sister? Is there, again, something that belongs to the camp of the world that you need to abandon and forsake, that you need to leave at the foot of the cross, that you can walk in the paths of righteousness that God has set before you? We can help you with that even this morning as well, my brother, my sister. In a moment, when Eric comes and leads us, you know that's your opportunity to come forward and express these things that are on your heart, and we'll surround you with love and lift you up in prayer to our Father in Heaven. Maybe it's something of a personal nature. you want a private setting, one of our shepherds will be available in the conference room. You can make your way over to the conference room. they will do the same thing there. Surround you with love, lift you up in prayer as you unburden your heart before the Lord. Maybe it's uh, something physical or emotional spiritual, something that you've just been struggling with in recent days, weeks, months perhaps, the lesson is yours, the invitation is open.